This is JR. I'm going to be doing a lecture, um, which is, I think, a bit uncharacteristic, but I think meaningful because we haven't released content recently as uh, Andrew has been busy traveling and enjoying his free time in the summer between uh, graduating college and going to grad school. And I have not been releasing content because I, if I'm being perfectly honest, have been a bit lazy. Uh, my laziness, I hope, can be excused as we are all, in my opinion, who are listening to this, probably at least a little bit left leaning and, and understand that work is um, a bit unnecessary in our what we what should be a much more productive period of time in our history, but is not. And uh, I am unfortunately uh, a slave to the human psyche to some degree, and I wanted to spend my time doing something I enjoy. If you don't know, uh, I'll tell you that audio editing is something that requires your full attention and uh, is <laughs> a bit daunting. So. I, I hope that everyone can understand that this has been a little bit hard for me to get out, especially because just the the scale of this paper is so is so large, and editing it would be would be very difficult. So I wanted to hopefully bargain and um, and compromise such that I will try to do a substantial amount of reading from this paper um, and pair it with some some type of analysis and and uh and maybe filling in the holes so this is not going to be very heavily edited i will try to edit out any major mistakes um but i am in a hotel and uh i I hope that this is okay for you guys because I, i do think this is an important piece of material i think it dives into dialectics and historical materialism in a way that really elaborates on the the scientific value of Marxism and its analytical tools. Um, Because what liberals and conservatives and whatever people on the right would have you believe is that things are accidents and they're not always quantifiable, but that's wrong. We can directly look at the production of society and the people's um, relationship to that production and we can always tell when transitions are happening because of that relationship and it's quantifiable um, nature. It's important to realize that it's quantifiable. Otherwise, how else would this be scientific? As I believe it truly is, because you can test it. You can look at the data and come to these conclusions. Now, it's also qualitative. You could look at these things and say, well, you know, I think that because of this, such and such leads to this. And, you know, you could have a qualitative um, analysis, but really, really what it is is quantitative analysis, um, especially when you dive into the details, as Chris Harmon always does. Um, you will find that the quantitative analysis leads to the very similar conclusions. So that was the intro um, just to the um, gap in content compared to what I'm going to read now. So this is From Feudalism to Capitalism by Chris Harmon. And I want to start out with his intro. The transition from feudalism to capitalism is necessarily of enormous interest to Marxists. It is about how the system we live in rose on the western fringes of Europe and then spread to the rest of the world. It is the most recent example of how one mode of production changes into another and provided Marx and Engels with many of the insights they incorporated into the German ideology and the Communist Manifesto. 
Arguments about the transition are often, for this reason, as much about the correctness of Marx and Engels' method as they are about historical fact. So he starts with Robert Brenner, who's a Marxist historian, um, and he talks about the owners of production and the direct producers um, and how these things are related to a definite stage uh, of the methods of labor and is therefore related to social productivity. Um, social productivity is a, a somewhat complicated concept, but um, it's kind of self-descriptive in the sense that you could see how the productivity of a group of people directly really, uh, is directly related to the um, society and how things are built, how architecture is made, how art is formed, how, you know, all of those things are related, how people even interact with each other, you know, from uh, only being able to talk to each other on the street and writing letters to the, the telegraph or phone calls or text messaging. Um, and another point that is criticized um, by a lot of people, and especially people on the right, you can look at the Mises Institute, for example, who, who uh, criticize this, but this is called productive force determinism. Um, and a lot of Marxist historians really uh, steered away from productive force determinism as it, it is hard to... Uh, necessarily explain feudalism and capitalism in this way because a lot of Marxist historians and historians in general don't look at, they don't go early enough. They don't start at the beginning of feudalism in the uh, post-Roman Empire time, so um, about the 9th century, um, 10th century, to what is considered early capitalism in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I think 18th is, is a bit of a stretch, but... Um, there are definitely some capitalist modes of production in the 18th century that that um, some people would say if I didn't talk about it, it wouldn't be going early enough. And some people would say that uh, definite capitalist modes of production didn't exist until um, right before the Industrial Revolution. Um, but I think that it's it's valuable to talk about how these things even were relevant in the 17th century. So what I am going to cover now is the scope of the transition and and the author covers this um, as classic feudalism of the 10th century to classic capitalism of the 19th century um, and, and I guess the 20th century. So in feudal society, money played a little part in daily life. Land was more important. The point of labor was not to amass wealth, but largely for consumption. In classical capitalist societies, money is central. Urbanization is an important role of society. Selling something for someone's livelihood and growth is endless and only for the sake of capital accumulation. An explanation for the transition uh, comes from a couple of different authors and Peren is the first one he starts with and mostly these authors he goes into are, are criticisms of what they're doing and sometimes he's even criticizing authors who have criticized him. Uh, most of them are not contemporary though, most of them are uh, before his time necessarily. Um, so before, so I'm going to quote him, before the argument can begin, it's necessary to spell out what the transition was about. There has been a tendency in the recent discussions among Marxists to see it in terms of the change from the organization of society, or at least of the economy, of the 14th century to that of the late 18th century. 
but the scale of the transition is best grasped by comparing feudalism in its classic form of that of the 10th century with capitalism in its classic form that of the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, so in the 10th century, you have overwhelmingly rural societies. Uh, you know, everything in London to... Uh, which this was just after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Um, everything from London to Russia was primarily um, rural and feudal with very, very small towns. Um, and Peren goes into the explanation of feudalism as... Uh, Society turning in on itself due to Islamic expansion into the Mediterranean. Um, this includes Spain, uh, Israel, uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya. Uh, all of these, Moro you know, what is Morocco now? All of these places were expanded into in some in the in Spain they called them the Moors and in the Middle East that's more explained as I guess Arabs but I guess some people would say that Arabs were Moors as well but I digress uh, so it is this happenstance expansion um, that he likes to use but the primary characterization of capital um, is that capital seeks to gain and expand capital endlessly. And one of the problems with uh, mercantilism that was ultimately developed due to the Crusades that pushed Islam out of central points in uh, the trade of the Mediterranean is that mercantilism coexisting with feudalism, which did happen, uh, ultimately has differing interests because mercantilists in, in their very nature are looking to gain wealth, um, whereas, as we talked about earlier, feudal people were more interested in um, having power over land. Uh, it was more about maintenance. Capitalism was about expansion. Uh, mercantilism, as a early mode of capitalist production, was about expansion. Uh, so... You have, I think it's it's spelled F-U-G-G-E-R, and I think it's uh, f like Fugger or Fugger, which is funnier, uh, family in Germany. The life uh, expectancy of a mercantilist family was about three generations. And that's because ultimately, under feudal society, with the inability to expand endlessly, you have a general convergence of interests. Uh, mercantilists, they wanted to be able to um, expand their wealth, but they also wanted to be able to maintain. So as, as they expanded their wealth under mercantilism, they had less and less things to expand into because the feudal lords had control over the food, they had control over the rivers, they ever, so they couldn't really expand that much. And what they really relied on was the surplus, the small amount of surplus food that was available and the towns that were uh, making some type of 
skilled labor commodity that they could trade with other places, swords and such. So the way that you can best explain this, and this is a Marxist idea, is that uh, you have money, commodity, money, as the primary mode of mercantilist trade in early feudalism and what you what you need to have and what you have under capitalism is money commodity production which is the control of labor backed into a commodity and back into money which is trading so what you start with is some type of initial capital you buy some sort of raw material you give it to a laborer that you ultimately own the means of production over they you pay them some wage and they use their skills to transform it into a new commodity which you then sell at a disproportionately higher price uh, and the reason why you could do that is because of the transformation of something that is relatively useless like a hunk of copper and tin and steel into something like bronze or um, I guess steel isn't necessarily useless but uh, something that's more formable from iron, copper, tin. These things make alloys that are very useful metals. Metals that are hard and have a certain type of usability in farm equipment of the feudal society. Or as we all too well know, even in our industrial uh, or post-industrial capitalist age, which is war, uh, metal is ob often used, obviously. So... I think that that's really uh, a central part, and you're, you're going to hear me going through some papers here because I, I did take notes, and like I said, this is going to be mostly unedited. unedited. Um, but I think it's important to look at capitalism at its height versus feudalism at its height. Um, to contrast capitalism at its height, urban life dominates so that even owners of agricultural land are based in towns. The great majority of the population work in industry or services. Money plays an absolutely central role. Everyone depends on selling something in order to get the means of livelihood. Even if all most people have to sell is their labor power. More, most importantly, there is no limit to the accumulation of wealth. Everything can be turned into money, and members of the ruling class can own endless amounts of money. What drives the system forward is not the consumption of the ruling class, but what Marx calls self-expansion of capital, the endless pursuit of accumulation for the sake of accumulation. So that those I think I think that elaborates on the differences between um, capitalism and feudalism in large part. And I, I wanna I wanna use some explanations to or some quotes to explain those things. So this is some of the explanations for the transition. All classes of the population, from the emperor who had no other revenues than those derived from his landed property, down to the humblest serf lived directly or indirectly on the produce of the soil. Whether they raised them by their own labor or confined themselves to collecting and consuming them, movable wealth no longer played any part in economic life. All social existence was founded on property or the possession of land. This is about the 11th century. So what you really have is um, a mercantilist class that lives in parallel to the ruling class that eventually would buy into the ruling class uh, and an important point on this uh, part of the paper is that 
there was no way to expand capital indefinitely. So what we're having is the groundwork being laid for capitalism. And to quote Paul Sweezy, long-distance trade could be a creative force, bringing into existence a system of production for exchange alongside the old feudal system of production for use. So here's another historian uh, elaborating on that point. And uh, here's one of Harmon's analyses. What can be called, for short, the Perrin-Sweezy-Wallerstein view has one great strength. It focuses on the contrast between production for use, characteristic of pre-capitalist societies, and production simply in order to expand exchange value. As Wallerstein puts it, what characterized capitalism was that, quote, capital came to be used with the primary objective or intent of self-expansion. In the system, past accumulations were capital only to the extent that they were used to accumulate more of the same. It was this relentless and curiously self-disregarding goal of the holder of capital, the accumulation of still more capital, which we denominate as capitalist. Harmon quotes Marx, and I think it's important to use these quotes as they elaborate on Marxism as a whole, and not just in this paper, but to quote Marx, value, the objectified labor which exists in the form of money, could only grow by exchange with a commodity whose value itself consisted in the ability to increase exchange value. But such use value is only possessed by living labor capacity. Value, money, can therefore only be transformed into capital through exchange with living labor capacity. And this is what we know as wage labor. Uh, and to quote Marx again, um, and it's all about selling your labor power, money, quote, money can, in general, be transformed into capitals, or the money owners turn into capitalists, only to the extent that the free work is available on the commodity market. Free, insofar as he, on the one hand, has at his disposal his own labor capacity as a commodity, and on the other hand, has no other commodity at his disposal is free, completely rid of all of the objective conditions for the realization of his labor capacity, and therefore, as a mere subject, a mere personification of his own labor capacity, is a worker in the same sense that the money owner is a capitalist, as subject and repository of objectified labor. This is an important concept that is going to come up later in the sense uh, when he talks about um, something called, quote, free labor, and this is what free labor is. Keep that in mind. Perrin suggests that market pressure led to wage labor, but uh, through documentation we can largely see that market pressure didn't lead to wage labor. It led to a reinvigorated feudal society based on slave labor, um, as the feudal lord's interests and the mercantilist's interests slowly started to converge. Uh, they did rely on wage labor in towns to some degree to provide um, commodities to people from other places, other feudal lords in other parts of the world. The next part, which is, uh, I think, probably the most interesting, he, he really tears apart uh, these two Marxist historians' uh, arguments about the transition of feudalism to capitalism, which is Dobbs and Brenner. Brenner is an American, American Marxist. Um, I'm not really sure who Dobbs is, uh, other than the reference to him in this paper, but I, I'm going to link some my notes to this, uh, and you guys can, I have some hyperlinks in there you can click on if, you, if you're more interested, and I also will link the paper, as I, I really think this is an important read. So Dobbs 
argument is it looks at the internal mechanisms rather than the external economic pressure. Uh, trade highlighted the issue of production in feudal society. People fled the towns to trade and weaken the power of the feudal lords. Merchants then bought the land to gain power. So this is them getting into that commodity ownership that now they're not buying it from the feudal lord. This is them expanding their power. They're not buying it from the feudal lord. They're owning the land because the feudal lords are weakened. So they're reliant upon money in order to make up for what they lose in land that serfs are no longer working on because the serfs are moving into the towns. So now they are becoming reliant on, on the merchants in some way. So merchants are now able to buy a product directly and trade this. And this is really the root of where they start to expand. Um, it fails to address the rise, uh, this Dobbs argument, fails to address the rise of one mode of production as the failure of another. Uh, he makes it seem like an accident. Um, and I think this is, again, popular in today. We see people who look at uh, leaders who come to power as um, accidents, and then we see these uh, commonly, you know, you look at people's trade policies and their foreign policy and their domestic policy, and it's, by liberals especially, it is viewed as, like, this person's interest. This person came to power and people liked them, and they were voted, and they voted for them. And then, in a completely unrelated way, these people implemented policies. And now, while that's not the way that most people would say that history happens, it is common to portray history that way. Um, and the reason why most people wouldn't say it happens in necessarily that way is because we experience history every day. And he moves on the Brenner. Uh, and Brenner's argument is, is, is in depth and he, and Brenner is a much more, uh, avowed Marxist than most of these other writers that he criticizes and he really tears him apart. If you want to look at someone who, uh, criticizing someone and in a completely, um, it's not funny. Like a lot of people, when they tear apart people that they're contemporaries with, they are funny in some way, but... Uh, he really is just very crass and dry, and uh, I think it's an interesting analysis because it's important to criticize each other, especially as Marxists. Um, so Brenner's argument only recognizes merchant industrial capitalism, but this is when agrarian capitalism was born. So to quote some of the paper, what Brenner does, essentially, is to take up Dobbs' argument but simplify it in a way which gives it greater polemical power. To this end, he takes up and expands just one of the elements Dobbs sees at work in this period, the leasing of estates by former feudal lords to farmers who employ wage labor. He ignores the, he ignores the mass of other material which exists in Dobbs' studies on merchant capital, handicraft production, rural and urban manufacturing. Uh, I think this is important because this is kind of iterating what I was saying before, that this is where... Um, Feudal lords are losing some of their power. And you can see it, and Dobbs has a book um, called Studies in which he iterates this point and gives more elaboration on, but it's, it's, the very, it's the beginning of the end for feudalism, and it's the point where their interest, the interest of mercantilists and feudal, and feudal lords start to converge. So for Dobbs... Um, 
argument which Brenner elaborates on, capitalism emerges for him neither as merchant capitalism nor as industrial capitalism, but as agrarian capitalism. And this is Brenner, quote, It was indeed in the last analysis, agricultural revolution. Based on the emergence of capitalist class relations in the countryside, which made it possible for England to become the first nation to experience industrialization. End quote. This could only happen because of the outcome of the class struggle under feudalism. The original, end quote, the original breakthrough in Europe to a system of more or less sustained growth was dependent upon a two-sided developmental development of class relations. First, the breakdown of the system of lordly surplus extraction by means of extra-economic compulsion, Second, the undermining of peasant possession, or the abating of any trend towards full peasant ownership of the land. Now, to summarize the points that Brenner's making, uh, it can be looked at like, like this. Um, how feudalism leads to this, and I think these two points really uh, inherit the, the bulk of the argument. Lords stopped surplus extraction due to competition of, outside of their economy, which is true. We see mercantilists who are now buying land, and um, these feudal lords have to do something about it in order to maintain and, and supplement their loss in production of the land that they previously owned. Um, but they also have to, in order to maintain this, this uh, in order to avoid further weakening of, their, of themselves, they have to stop peasants from owning the land uh, and own that, and, and still own that. So we still see an ownership of the land as a primary means of uh, wealth accumulation and maintenance. So we see feudal rent, and that's an important point because it leads to, to, to the capitalist rent later on. And really what that's about is the increased productivity of the land. Because people who have a vested interest and not some passive interest and, and uh, maintenance interest in the land uh, in terms of maintaining their armory, uh, they have a productivity interest in the land. Um, someone who rents it is going to drive their workers much harder and find new methods and more productive ways of producing on this land. Um, but here are some of the problems that Harmon uh, likes to elaborate on with the, and he, he lists them, and I think it, it would be good. I'm going to go into some of the examples, but I think it'd be good for people to read some of the problems with the argument because these criticisms are really the most important. One, lords must lose some of their power, but not all of it. That is a problem. He doesn't address the intermediate result of feudalism to mercantilism. What is important about this result? He doesn't explain how the market came into existence. Um, he looks at these things as happenstance. Um, he doesn't see how the loss of feudal power and the rise of mercantilism directly leads to, the, to, the, to that contradiction coming to a head and coming to feudal rent which ultimately is fully resolved um, in capitalist rent. Four, ignores the roles of towns and presents them as reactionary. Towns provided escape and more power to the serfs. It's why the Eastern European feudal system was much stronger. The towns were smaller and fewer in scale, keeping feudal lords in charge. And to quote, the essence of the urban economy based on luxury production for a limited market was economic restriction, and in particular, control over the labor market. The urban artisans could be anti-aristocratic, 
but were just as frightened of labor market competition from a free peasantry as they were of the feudal lords. And importance of the, the spread of knowledge about how improvement was possible, one contributing factor to the economic advance of Bohemia in the century before the Thirty Years' War was the circulation of books detailing the most productive agricultural methods. Printers disseminated technical books, especially in the sphere of agriculture. This comes from Ladoff. As for Brenner's claim that towns contained too small a proportion of the population to influence what happened on the land, this begs the question of what happened when towns grew bigger. And this happened in the two centuries which did make the breakthrough to capitalism. In 1650 in Holland, 8% of the total population lived in Amsterdam alone, and in England, 7% lived in London. While in France, only 2.5% lived in Paris, one estimate suggests in the century after 1650, one in seven English one in seven of English population lived in London at some point in their life. It is a strange coincidence that the town should have this influence precisely where the chains of feudalism were successfully smashed. While in the countries of Eastern Europe, there, the towns were much smaller and more dispersed. Feudal relations could strengthen their grip over agriculture. He ultimately ignores the changes in production and technology, um, shipbuilding, for example, which makes trade much more possible, hint, hint, that is directly related to mercantilism, is it not? Um, especially on the Mediterranean, where feudalism is directly next to um, the strongest feudal societies, that is. And it makes no attempt to, this is number six, makes no attempt to link agriculture to industry. Agriculture and industry are heavily related, especially in England, where their main export was textiles. Calling it agrarian capitalism is a mischaracterization that misleads readers in a lot of ways from connecting the productive force determinism to the events in history. Both arguments try to explain the transition without talking about the development of the forces of production. Brenner shows little concern for the changes in the material settings. Forces of production directly in <clears throat> affect people's interrelations, and those interrelations directly affect societal organization. Perrin attributes change in the feudal society to market pressure. Brenner attributes it to farming on new land with old techniques, but there are signs of technological growth that could explain it as well. Expansion rooted in the feudal mode of production. Since the influence on feudalism was extra-economic and not between buyers and sellers, its root was not economic in the transition. Interclass coercion is inherently economic. The Roman Empire collapsed rather than because rather than increase the productivity of labor, they just increased the number of slaves. This led to economic stagnation. Now, uh, I will read a quote here, but I think that this is important. This is kind of whenever the dialectic points came to. Uh, a point for me um really he, this this drives it home in my opinion the slave society of ancient antiquity which dominated the mediterranean area in, in the fourth fifth century a.d collapsed through its inability to develop the forces of production after the second century the wealth of the roman empire was created by slavery and the ruling class of the empire sought to increase its wealth through increasing the number of slaves to be obtained by warfare rather than by any concern with increasing the productivity of labor. Rome exploited its empire without creating anything. No technical innovation had occurred since the Hellenistic Age. Rome's empire was fed by pillage. Successful wars provided slave manpower and precious metals drawn from the hoarded treasures of the East. 
On this basis, on this basis, it was able to build a civilization centered on a series of great towns, where the ruling class that exploited the countryside resided. But a point was eventually reached, as early as the second half of the second century, where the source of the surplus for maintaining this urban civilization began to run out. The supply of slaves began to decrease. Incessant wars could be more or less. Incessant wars could more or less hold the boundaries of the empire for some two or three centuries more, but they could not overcome the economic stagnation. And with it, the proliferation of famines, plagues, interwoven class civil wars, and on occasion, revolts from below. Finally, the empire as a whole collapsed in the face of, quote, barbarian tribes, initially invited into its boundaries in a desperate attempt to fight off other barbarian tribes. The whole superstructure of urban civilization came crashing down as the, quote, base of slave-based production ceased to adequately support it. I'm going to expand on this a little bit, um, because he expands on it a little bit later as well. But this is really where the dialectics is important, because you see that the Rome inherently relied on slave labor to increase their wealth, because they could then produce commodities, such mostly food, to increase their wealth without having to pay anyone. Now, the issue that they were coming to is that they couldn't get enough food to feed their armies, feed their people, and feed their slaves. And simultaneously, since they couldn't feed their armies, they, their armies could not protect them on the edges. So they did a couple different things. They invited, uh, quote, barbarian tribes into the Roman Empire to give them some type of land that they were thus invested in in terms of protecting it. Um, they also did this by giving slaves land as well who were thus invested in it. Now, it might be hard to see, but uh, if you analyze it, this is really the beginning of serfdom. You know, you have a, a small, very small ruling, ruling group, ruling class, that then has the ability to give out land you know, maybe like dukes, like earls, these um, English terms that we know. But these people then are able to uh, amass some power because of the the control they have of the land that provides the primary source of life in their area. These became small centralized armies. Um and this is ultimately what led to the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of kingdoms, was the control over food and the ability to feed, feed and arm small armies. Um, and this happened all the way down to the core of Rome. So it started on the fringes. It started in Spain. It started in uh, Gaul. It started in the, um, you know, as far east as maybe to, to Turkey, to some degree. I mean, that's where the Eastern Empire really maintained itself, but these things were happening on the fringes of the Western Empire mostly. And that is why you see the rise of serfdom. It is a direct result of the contradictions. And that is so important. And that's that's so clear with the Romans. And uh, I think that that clarity that he gives in this part of the paper, which is why I think it's important to read this paper, um, not just listen to me rant and ramble, is that the, the dialectic clarity here that is given to us by Rome later on in the paper is that same 
clarity that we use to analyze the feudal collapse into capitalism. Because these collapses are not instantaneous, but they rely on the on the raising, not to sound like a cliche as a Marxist, but the rising of these contradictions coming to the surface. And to me that is just that is just so interesting and and so valuable especially as uh, as someone who's interested in historical materialism this is even further characterized in the in what we know is like the holy roman empire and it's interesting because uh monks in that time were the only people who were literate so the investments that they made were, were very small compared to modern capitalism but you see that the exploitation is uh, is common, but there is some interest in the serfs being around because that's how they get their main source of food. The way they keep serfs indoctrinated and, and working is through the monks. Um, you don't want to overeducate the serfs, then you know then they're not as easy to manipulate and overwork and exploit. Um, but really, this is it's interesting how the 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 transition is so clear with this this analytical method. He goes on to elaborate on the growth of the feudal forces of production. So major innovation uh, is the wheeled plow. It started in the sixth century with the Slavs, um, Po Valley, uh, Germany in the eighth. So the Po Valley in the seventh, Germany in the eighth, um, Britain in the ninth century, and other major innovations are. Uh, they used animal dung to reinvigorate the soil. As if you know anything about biology, it's because of the nitrogen. Um, oxes were more useful than horses for for some agricultural products. Um, slow, but the the growth isn't necessarily stagnant as Brenner or Dobbs would suggest, or uh, Perrin or Sweezy, you know any of those people. So to quote Harmon here and uh, further quote Lynn White. Yet, historical research in the last two or three decades has shown that there were considerable advances in the forces of production during the feudal period, both in industry and agriculture. As Lynn White has pointed out, quote, the growth of technology in the last de- in, is the least developed and most rapidly shifting part of economic history. The state of records and the, and the taste of historians, and historians have combined to distort past activities. Today, our view is being somewhat rectified by a surge of interest in studying with what evidence is available improved methods of production and transportation, the emergence of new types of goods, and changed ways of living and thinking, end quote. So the paper starts to kick a little bit into higher gear here as we delve further into uh, the medieval um, technology. So mass urbanization was really impossible due to the increased productivity of labor. Now we see this with the plow. So we know that merchants were buying up land uh, feudal lords were giving out more were renting land to to serfs and so we know that the those lands are becoming more productive and feudal lords power is necessarily discreet decreasing what this led to is people moving into towns primarily in western europe uh now this allowed for the increase in trades and as people became better um, and more intelligent and because they were in towns information was more easily accessible thus people got smarter more quickly people were able to design things like the mechanical clock um, which is 
in no way, shape, or form a small innovation. Um, and I'll quote here, among the most notable innovations of the feudal centuries were the crank, enabling the much wider use of the water mill, the spinning wheel, the lathe, the development of dyes, printing, paper making, the invention of eyeglasses, um, new shipbuilding technologies, and the compass. Um, so like, if people lost their vision later in life, even if they were literate, like they, they weren't able to read anymore. So you start losing your vision at 25, 30, um, as people even in our generation do. They didn't have LASIK, you know, so they had to really rely on their ability to read and write to contribute. And so they could spend another 30, 40 years. And now what Malthusian uh, philosophers and um, speakers and thinkers will say and and what people who like to uh, preach the, the benefits of capitalism will say is that People died so young back in these times, but really those averages that I talk about are because of infant mortality um, being so high. But I mean, obviously, the population was growing regardless, and people were living for longer. Thus, the increase in the ability of the literate minority to to spend more time thinking about things and writing about things had a had a non arbitrary effect on on the way society was run, simply because of the the. the density of the thinking and writing population at the time um it's not trivial this isn't a non-trivial gain in feudal society there is a very real reason to believe that this is important and with the focus on towns uh we have town and country feudalism and this is an important development the exchange of money was meaningless to rural feudal serfs but became central in towns very er even even early on you know even when towns were small um urban areas as they grew became more and more influential um, merchants who spent their time sailing and trading between towns and, and, and feudal lords spent most of their time in these towns the division of labor began in the towns so you have people who are property owners um, to some degree uh, inherently interested in the productivity of their labor um, and thus the productivity is directly related to specialization. Um, we see things like that, you know, with Henry Ford, and there are beginnings of that idea even here. Um, Ex-serfs who fled to the towns to flee the um, more and more brutal methods of the feudal lords who were losing their power and supplementing that loss in power with an uh, increase in, in violence, um, as we often see. Um, so ex-serfs were commonly employed for, for wages in, in towns, not very well paid, but uh, it was mostly because of their lack of ownership. Um, this is essential to capital as to transfer no ownership of the means of their production to the laborers. So even early on, we see people who necessarily aren't feudal lords um, practicing that the what we even what you know what we see today, which is the exploitation and um, absorbance of the surplus value that laborers create which is the very beginnings of, of capitalism uh, so the shop owners did employ guilds to guarantee them money but slowly the ground for for industrial capitalism and 
this this just means like in a lot of ways the um the guilds were made so that as to resist even technological change in some ways but this is the, the idea that um, I mean, even labor unions in, in today's day and age uh, look down on AI, and you can see the relationship today. This is important because there was no way for these people to guarantee their lifestyle, which is really what people are con- concerned with, the, the, the level of comfort that they can have compared to the amount that they have to work. So inherently, you see these groups struggle against the the increase in technology because who is ultimately care ultimately the richest caretaker and who monopolizes the the use of force which is the feudal lord the only way they can keep the feudal lords happy and not have that monopolized form of violence used on them is through paying rent and paying their taxes and you know ultimately in some cases supporting a different feudal lord to use their monopolized and legitimate legitimized use of violence against their feudal lord, which we also see the arbitrariness of the the legitimization of those things, uh, because you know how can you have a monopoly on something that's shared by multiple people? Uh, it goes to show the the arbitrary nature of country in in a sense, um, but. We see this even today, like, you know, people are against AI, not because we don't, because we want to work. No one, like, really desires uh, work in in the sense that people don't want to do things that they dislike in order to provide for a life that they do like. Now, some people would still choose to work, but it's because they necessarily enjoy their work. And it's not necessarily, um, sorry for using that word, but it's not... A detriment to their lifestyle and people would work less I, i'm assuming um and supplement that labor with ai the reason why people are fundamentally opposed to ai and fundamentally opposed to technological advancement is specifically that capitalism does not provide and in this case a neo-capitalist feudal society that is has an interesting relationship between merchants laborers and, and feudal lords that is slowly beginning the the workings of um, capital gain is that there's no real way to provide for your life in terms of your health your education your livelihood your food um, when those things replace you because then when those things replace you you become worthless now that's the problem is that you now have no way to provide for your lifestyle so when people look at leftists and marxists and they say look they don't want they they talk about you know being overworked but they refuse to allow ai to take over but the real issue is not that we don't want ai to take over which i would personally prefer um is that there's no mechanism for the human experience to be supplemented when ai does take over there's no gain in our lifestyle whenever the productivity of ai overtakes human productivity um it's something that i think that liberals fail to see and especially conservatives are i mean and i'm going to be 
a bit crass maybe, but it truly is the the foundations of fascism because it's it's based in hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the point. It's the it's the projection of power. It's about I can do whatever I want. You can't do whatever you want. I can sub- I can make you follow anything that I say because I control all of the means of production. So if you don't listen to me, you don't get to work and your life is dependent upon capital and then they can demonize whoever they want. Now, that is why capitalism in its at its core is a good groundwork for fascism because there's no mechanisms to take care of people outside of capital. Merchants and capitalism the rise of towns was emblematic of laborers trading their work for capital to survive. Um, just because new systems came about doesn't mean the systems of exploitation didn't exist anymore. It also doesn't mean the merchants weren't responsible for part of this exploitation. In fact, the commodifications of good made with labor inherently reinforces the exploitation becoming the mold that feudalism is shaped in. It allowed people to expand their wealth. Uh, it gave merchants political power that charged feudal society such that the foundations of capitalism were laid. Eventually, rural handiwork became common, and these people did their own did own their means for, means of production. They were influenced by merchants since they often did not own the raw material. This is that thing we were talking about: money, commodity, production, money, commodity, or commodity money. So, you have a, a system here. Um, that is slowly turning into capitalism. What is what truly is the spark is is mechaniz- mechanization. Um, so that's what kind of avoids the truly capitalist nature. But if they had mechanization in the 1400s, the way that they have mechanization now, or in, even in the 1800s, it would have we would have maybe lived in a communist world because we would have had the capitalist issues that we're having now in like the 1800s. But regardless. Uh, so rural workers slowly became more connected due to this industrialization. Um, sorry, I used industrialization wrong. Slowly became more connected because of this uh, reliance on the petite bourgeoisie, which was emerging, uh, who had an inherent reliance on the agriculture. So rural people had to become more connected because trade routes were becoming an essential part of society. And trade started with agriculture agriculture was also becoming more and more efficient they were coming up with new methods of farming um, as we talked about earlier that made uh, the reliability of crops um, better so that merchants could trade more Uh, merchants had an inherent interest in owning that means of production so they slowly began taking over the trades of towns Um, and Merchant capital was inherently tied to feudalism due to merchants becoming lords quite frequently, as we talked about with the Fuggers, Fugers, don't know, I'm not German. Um, but you see their differing interests as the merchant's interest was an accumulation of capital and wealth, um, and the feudal interest was maintaining land. Well, feudal, feudal lords were losing land, so their interests were slowly turning towards wealth accumulation because they had to make up for their loss in power. The loss in power that they have was due to their loss in land, so they had to make up for that loss in power in economic strength. Merchants were in the opposite spectrum. They needed to gain land 
in order to make it in order to make their capital accumulation more productive. So they had the capital. Now what they needed to do was gain land, and slowly they were converging. They were coming to this point where most feudal lords were uh, interested in accumulating capital, uh, such that they were taking over trade, agriculture, you know, and at least the feudal lords that were surviving, and then the mercantilists who uh, eventually traded in the in the lordship, and then later on uh, became lords as a necessity of owning land. Um, and this was due to the they didn't they wouldn't have had to do this in modern day capitalism, but due to the uh, slow refinement processes and stuff. They, the the fastest way to extract value was through land ownership, um, which is how it is today, but different. Um, and the capitalist crisis was accumulation and production outstripped the sources of profits to the capitalists, where the feudal, feudal crises um, was much slower. The number of people grew faster than the means of production could sustain. So... Uh, the source of profit to capitalists was the exploitation of labor. Um, so production outpaced the, the exploitation of labor that allowed some uh, small laborers to actually become part of the, the merchant or put, at that time the petite bourgeois. Um, at the time, they began to run their own shops. The feudal system allowed prosperity even in even when internal contradiction happens. Eventually, a lower-than-average annual harvest would mean total collapse, famine, civil wars followed. As we see, the contradictions resolved in different ways. Um, feudal lords became more ide ideologically separated from the working class. Um, again, this is because the working class began to realize its own interests. Uh... But the things they wanted to trade needed to be made by the people who needed to be fed. Agriculture became less valuable for trade, but no investment to improve it left an economy that relied on other items for trade to be unable to trade them due to the people who make the items being unfed. So you see how the cycle here, it's a contradiction, and it results to the collapses that we even see today. This is when you have the Black Death, um, or the Black Plague, uh, so about half the population saved the agrarian economy, um, and not due to some Malthusian idea that it was overpopulation. It was not overpopulation. It was due to the cycle of, of capital, um, and actually had to do with the increasing, increasingly uh, far distances that ships could travel. So trips were going farther and further away, and these ships would gather resources from places in Asia um, where rats would board their ships. And due to the ability to create more food to give to the merchants who could then travel further because they had more food and more resources, those merchants could then go to farther away places where there was distinct isolation of population. Where because of these isolations, Diseases formed in these places, and when you bring them back to somewhere, you inherently are going to disease an entire population. So the because the idea of accumulation 
and this also has to do with the reduced rate of profit growth. Um, because in order to increasingly increase your profits, once you've dominated all of the industry, you have to find new industry. So because they couldn't really find new industry in feudal society because of how slow the technology happened, the way that they did it was similar to the Romans. Instead of dominating an area, they would trade with new areas, so they'd find new markets to exploit. So if they weren't interested in constantly growing their money, they wouldn't have traveled to new markets to exploit, and they wouldn't have brought back diseases. This this, this collapse that, that saved capitalism in, in the sense that, or saved uh, the agrarian economy, um, which led to the emergence of true capitalism, is uh, due to the technological advances which led to the further and further traveling away of merchants. And I think that that's clear, and I think that it's most people don't see it that way. Most people see it, see it because population density, growing towns, such and such, and it's always explained that way, but it's not. It's important that we don't get into this Malthusian thought. This Malthusian thought is going to always, it is a fascist track. And even Marxists are susceptible to this idea of Malthusian collapse. And it's not good because it, it just leads to fascism. And because people start to pick and choose who's the overpopulation. And it's never the case. Never forget that we have enough resources for everyone. The reason why we don't have the resources is because of the artificial scarcity that is produced by capitalism. It is important to not forget that. And it is important to realize that the expansion of capital is the problem every single time. Something important emerges as well from the post-plague collapse, or the plague collapse. And um, I guess post-plague collapse could, if I knew how to speak, could actually be the way you say it. Um, but you ended up with something of the absolute state. So the recovery of the plague propped up on trade and town centers. Um, so you had administrators who would use the power of the monarchy to keep towns in check and use towns as a point of leverage to get the monarchs to give them some of the surplus of the town's production. So now you really have um, managers, you know, people who... Uh, and this is something that capitalists do even today. Um, with uh, lobbyists to a certain degree. Uh, labor unions did this to, uh, like, you know, we control the labor. You need the labor to get the votes because you need the work. You know, a lot of this is about trading power, and it's interesting the capitalists are always between them. Uh, so you, you end up with something that is merchant capital, but it, it now now merchants have the authority of the state um and they use their uh wealth to identify with um identify with anti-feudal forces but they use that feudal force to preserve uh their their authority in the land um a good way to analyze how society was moving was to evaluate the use of of armies Slowly we begin to see people fighting as nations rather than as lords to secure trade routes and make trading more safe as an investment. So you look at uh, England. I mean, <laughs> pre-industrial England was still doing this. So, you know, they were now fighting as the English Empire. They weren't fighting as the Duke of um, 
Worcestershire and versus the Earl of fucking Shippensburg. It was the monarch going into India to get spices. It was the monarch going into South Africa to get precious metals. It was the monarch um, going into the Caribbean to get gold and tobacco. Uh, it was the monarch going into America to produce cotton. Um, and you see, and like, I think that that is like, you see how this, this mercantilist and you look at the, the, um, the revolution, like, uh, the Cromwell revolution. Uh, and I, I'm going to expand on this later, but you see how his siding with the trade uh, merchants ultimately led to this state in England. I don't. I think this was inevitable because of the rise of, of mercantilism. But I think that um, revolutionary fervor furthered this. So you uh, ultimately have these revolutions like Cromwell, uh, and they're aided specifically by revolutionary forces but you also have pushback from the opposing uh interests of the the feudal class or the the feudal lords um they usually resort to force to make up for this you see this uh in uh spain for example with the inquisition um and so Charles I's opposition to the new way of life led to a complete split in the forces that led to a middle-class mercantilist um, group opposing him. Uh, the precondition for this was the networks that formed parallel to each other under the, feudal, the feudalist and mercantilist society. Um, this is in 1648. The monarchy of France was removed with no plan to govern the French society. Um, so the basically ended up being ruled in a neo-feudal way because the the merchants just replaced the uh the feudal lords and then the same way in england they resorted to colonialism and they're going to have the same problem that the roman empire did uh in terms of instead of increasing their their mode of production they simply expanded their empire which as we've seen is not the way to uh keep your dominance um for a much longer period of time so the now this didn't manifest itself in the same way but uh they france returned to the feudal societies with some mercantilist properties um so capitalism isn't successful just because of the exploitation of free labor in colonies france experienced poverty and holland shrunk domestic economies that could benefit from colonial colonialism uh, slavery was only beneficial when the labor could be easily enforced and did not rely on the initiative of the labor. So you look at tobacco, you see sugarcane. Cotton was a little bit different because cotton, like you, like it's not very easy to pick cotton. And no matter how hard you whip your slave, they can't really pick it faster. So um, tobacco and sugarcane were the primary slave crops. Um, uh, in the West. And so I thought that was an interesting analysis that you really do need to have uh, the level of 
of supervision is directly related to the level of production. Which I guess in, in a way, innovation was, it was innovation itself. But in order to keep a slave a slave, you have to keep them uneducated. So in order to get free labor, where we talked about earlier, where you need um, a wage, where the only thing that someone had was to sell their labor power, uh, is still the most important to exploit because they needed to have enough of an education to learn a trade. So between two revolutions, under Louis XIV, the monarchy was stronger than ever. The reestablishment of monarchy under, after Cromwell served to solidify the idea that monarchy was needed for capital expansion. This is what we were talking about earlier when they started administrators started using the power of the of the monarchy or the feudal lord to enforce their capital expansion, in in order to gain some of the industry in the town. Uh, Britain's economic conditions allowed for serious competition to France, even though they were smaller. France was slowly moving in the direction of Britain. French saw capitalist exploitation as better than feudal exploitation. Um, so this eventually leads to uh, the revolution in Spain. And I think a point that I wanted to talk about was interesting how uh, the way that feudalism manifested into mercantilism uh, in England, because mercantilism started... Uh, I mean, it kind of popped up everywhere, but it started in the edges of the empire, um, of the Roman Empire specifically, and started with peddlers. And places that had access to water inherently were able to capitalize on mercantilism in a way that other places couldn't because sea travel was the fastest way of traveling. So what place has the most access to the most waterways of any place in Europe? Well, Britain. And so you, the acceleration towards the transition of a neo-feudal or a neo-feudal society where mercantilism dominates and uses the feudal projection of power to dominate uh, the land and, and expand its capital is the first one to go through the Industrial Revolution. And then... It moves east in the now you had the Paris Commune uh, in the late 1700s and then interestingly enough you know this is when Marx and Marx was about uh, you have the 1848 revolution in Germany which I think is the perfect culmination of a bourgeois revolution even more so than than Paris even though the Parisians forgot to secure the bank in Paris, which was a huge mistake. But the issue in Germany was that, and Marx writes about this, and so does Engels, talks about how in, in 18, the 1840s, everyone wanted to be a socialist or a communist. Everyone was talking about communism. I'm a communist. And it's because the, the interests of the middle class, in order to expand, and we talked about this earlier, how whenever you reduce... When, so you increase your profit, and at a, at a certain point, you, you you have invested in all of the industry, and we're seeing this today. And um, Trash Future talks about this a bit, and I would recommend listening to them. But they talk about how whenever you get into enough of the economy, when you get into enough of the industry, you privatize enough of it, you, you, you run out of places to invest, and you can't grow your capital anymore. So the petite bourgeois, who is 
it p- opposed to the um I forget what his name was, but he was the king in Germany. Uh and or I guess at that time it was, it was some prince. Uh and they were in he was his inability to rule in such a way that expanded capital opposed the petite bourgeois that wanted to move upward and solidify their place in society. Now, these people were educated enough to know that communism would inherently attract the peasantry, the people who produced the value, the laborers. So what they did is they handed out pamphlets and they and they they had a, a revolution to some degree where it turned out that the petite bourgeois, as, as we expect, just like liberals, um, they, they negotiated with the crown and there were all these worker protections put in there. All of these, these kind of labor-protecting policies where labor was, the value of labor was truly being transferred to the worker. As soon as the petite, petite bourgeois solidified their place in society i think it was by 18 like i think this revolution happened in 1848 and then by 1851 or 1852 all of these protections were removed all of them there was nothing left and we have another transformation of society in germany so this happens in 1848 um and it's interesting how it moves from west to east uh and then you have the next one you the next big one you have uh is in Russia in 1917 and that's the fall of the next big feudal power and Russia is interesting because and he talks about this in the paper how eastern europe really kept a grip on feudal society in in a way that was because of the, the lack of urbanization and that's to me that's really interesting how the strongest feudal society that benefited the most from they capitalized on mercantilism in a way that enriched the Russian Empire the society that had had the strongest grip within feudalism was this also the country that was the most strongly overthrown by the revolution uh, in the October Revolution and that I mean, the USSR was a, a major power in the world for a long time, and in many ways, under and without giving any credit to any particular leader, even under the weakest leaders in the Soviet Union, you had a world power that was domineering in its ability because it gave value to the worker. Um, and its ability to support revolutions abroad, which is largely what happened, regardless of what um, Trotskyist would say. The revolutions were supported widely abroad. Um, And you have... I I just find that that, that's just so interesting to see how very strong feudal society collapses so violently into a communist society. And it just shows how if the other countries would have stayed more, more violently feudal, more f- they they maybe would have had similar revolutions that Russian did but that's besides the point um but he really goes on here and i 
want to read maybe one more thing. Uh, and I thought it was I thought it was interesting to see how it moved from west to east and then into China, which is arguably the the country breaking, regardless of what you think of them, uh, is breaking the the world hegemony of uh, of, of America. Thankfully, um, but America has increasingly failed since the 60s, um, but that's not the point of this paper. The four-foot origin of capitalism, and this is the conclusion, is the growth of trade, free labor and manufacturing, separating the peasantry of the, from the land, and the primitive accumulation of the capital. Um, and that's really, I mean, to me, those four things really do elaborate on why uh capitalism was able to unfold somewhere like England particularly where there was a revolution that only gave land to the petit bourgeois just like in France there was a revolution that only gave land to the petit bourgeois in Germany there was a revolution that only gave land to the petit bourgeois Russia now Russia is different and there's no way in my opinion, to argue that, that Russia is a non-arbitrary different case. Um, I hope that you guys enjoyed this. I, I, I know that I probably skipped around a lot. The paper kind of skips around a bit, and I I hope that's okay with you guys. And I, I'm so sorry about the lack of content, but like I said, I <laughs> capitalist society is weighing down on me and my ability to, to produce... Um, what I see is a is valuable creative labor. There's more to come. Andrew is reading some papers from a bunch of people I can't pronounce the names of. Um, listen to Trash Future. Riley is a he's a contributor, and um, I want him to know that we couldn't be more thankful uh, for his contribution. You know. Um, we we all need each other, and the uh, whether it's creative labor or industrial labor or technical labor or bureaucratic labor, um, the important part is that we we all we all produce value in our labor, uh, and that's what unifies us. And as long as you're a laborer, it doesn't matter if you are a technocrat um, and you work in Silicon Valley. It doesn't matter if you fix cars in the middle of Alabama. What unifies us is our collective class interest against capitalists because without capitalists, we all have more. We all have so much more. And we need to uh, unify as a group. And I think that ultimately our unity as a group will lead to the unification of class interests and class consciousness. Um, so that little spurt, spurt um, I think, is the end of the paper. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening. I know it's been a tedious, long hour and 15 minutes, and it's unedited, unedited, uned, unedited <laughs> as you can see, and... Uh, you know, I couldn't be more appreciative of of everyone who thinks this is valuable and uh, tells me those things. Um, have a good one and uh, keep your heads up. Keep working. 
uh, we'll all get through it together at some point.